Welcome to the Where Does It Come From podcast. I'm Jo Salter, your podcast host and founder of Where Does It Come From, a social enterprise focusing on kind clothes that tell tales. In this podcast, I'll be chatting with amazing people who've dedicated themselves to making our world a better place through business, social enterprise, campaigning and much more. This time I'm taking a dive into Donut Economics with Erinch Sahan, the business and enterprise lead at Donut Economics Action Lab. Previously, he was the chief executive of the World Fair Trade Organisation and also spent seven years at Oxfam working in campaigns and programmes. Donut Economics is an innovative model created by Kate Rayworth. The model is a visual framework for development which must happen within the bounds of our planet's resources while meeting a minimum social foundation. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Where Does It Come From podcast. Today I've got a special guest, Erinch Sahan from the Donut Economics Action Lab. I know a lot of people are talking about donut economics and I thought you'd like to know what it's all about and Erinch is definitely the guy to tell us. So welcome Erinch. Thank you Joe. absolute pleasure to join you. So first of all, let's get stuck in. Tell us about yourself and your background and what led you to donut economics? Well Joe, I spent roughly the last 15 years in one form or another trying to transform the world of business. I mean, I, I worked in the Australian government. I worked in business for a bit. I, I worked at Oxfam for quite a long time, led the World Fair Trade Organization, always with this pursuit of how can we make a biz- business a force for good? What would it look like the way that they operate in their supply chains, in relation to their workers, in relation to the products and services that they put out into the world? You know, and over time, it became quite clear that we, we, we needed a bigger, broader economic paradigm, a framework, if you will, to help guide some of that discussion. And I, I worked with Kate Rayworth, the author of the book on donut economics. Um, when I was at Oxfam, we, you know, worked together while while she was actually creating the donut as a framework, as a concept. I saw that evolve um, firsthand and stayed in touch and and when the opportunity came up to to come and lead the work at donut economics action lab in relation to taking this framework into the world of business i i took it with two hands and haven't looked back fantastic you've had a, a wonderful career so far one that i just look at with kind of awe and envy i suppose because i'm driven the same way it's like how can we make the world a better place with using the systems that we've got now such as business so the things that you've done are, are fantastic and particularly around fair trade in oxfam i think it it leads very neatly onto that whole economic shift that you're talking about um so I think without further ado as well, tell us a little bit about donut economics, because a lot of people who are listening will have heard the phrase possibly, but not have any understanding of what that's about. So it's it's not about pastries. It's, it's not about sweets. It is about a compass for human prosperity for the 21st century, for our current century. And it's about looking at ways we can aim of meeting the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And that essentially means that the donut consists of two concentric rings. On the outside, there is the planetary boundaries, the ecological ceiling to ensure that humanity does not collectively overshoot our planetary boundaries that protect Earth's life-supporting systems. And there's also an inner concentric ring, the, the social foundation, and that is to ensure that no one is left falling short on life's essentials. And it's between these two boundaries, if you will, that there lies a donut shaped space. You've got on the outside, there's planetary boundaries on the inside, the social foundations that we must meet the essentials of of life for everybody. And uh, it's the space in between that is both ecologically safe and socially just. So it's the space in which humanity can thrive. It becomes a framework and, and a conceptual um symbol of of how we can reshape our economies transform our economies for the realities of the 21st century yes yeah, an interesting one isn't it because obviously our sort of standard economic model that we're used to working in in the the, the business the world the world of being a consumer and a business person or whatever is always just thinking around profit and consumption and trying to always generate 
growth in that kind of a way. So not really measuring the impacts or only recently starting to measure the impacts on um, our environment, our planet, and and almost starting to consider the impacts on the rest of the people involved as well. Whereas up until fairly recently, they weren't considered really at all, were they? That's right. Yeah. I mean, there was an assumption that growth is good. Um, and at a business level, that means growth of sales, growth of market share, growth of profits. At a macro level, it's growth of GDP and consumption. Uh, and, and of course, that can't be the case. It can't be the case on a planet with, where our ecological footprint has to be limited within the boundaries of our planet. It means that we have to have institutions, organizations and businesses that, that know how to navigate those trade-offs, the tensions, figure out what it is their purpose is in an economy that is allowing everyone and everything to thrive. Uh, that's a very different mindset. And uh, it's I think it's about sort of turning back and, and looking at the ideas from the 20th century and saying that we've now outgrown these. These are not the ideas the models, the frameworks, the systems that will allow us to overcome the challenges of the 21st century. That transformation hasn't really happened, I think, which is which is what you're getting at, Joe, that we haven't really, we, we're trying to solve 21st century challenges with a 20th century toolbox. Exactly. I couldn't have put that better myself, definitely. That, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I work a lot with um, artisanal groups and um, fair trade groups in India in particular and also in Africa and I had somebody on the podcast talking about this a few weeks ago and we were discussing how the we've all we've, we've kind of been pushed into disconnecting with everybody involved in all the way through we, we just see the nice bright shiny thing that gets produced and want to buy more of it encouraged by marketing and advertising to buy more of it without thinking about the impacts on all the people involved, but also the planet, you know, so if we keep, keep making all of these things, what's going to happen to our planet? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately we, we've constrained the field of sustainability to a paradigm, which says that you can only do good if you can increase your profits, increase your sales. It, it sort of has implicitly accepted those outdated 20th century ideas, concept systems that aren't, fit for purpose for 21st century challenges. And I think many of us in this space, you know, whether you're in fair trade or sustainability or ESG or, or purpose-led business, whatever it might be, you're probably feeling elements of that tension that there's something not quite right here. We're trying to put a, a round peg in a square hole. We're doing our best. We're really trying. And I, I know that there are so many impact-driven on entrepreneurs and founders of businesses that that do so much, that that really push the envelope. But ultimately, there are trade-offs, and navigating those trade-offs can mean in this system that, it, you know, it's a disadvantage to yeah. to pay more. You end up with less that you're able to then invest in it, or to price things in a way that allows for the cost of sustainable production. You know, all of these things can disadvantage businesses in in many contexts. And yeah, there are there are contradictions, but. One of the goals of my current role, I think, an implicit goal, and maybe I've never even said it in these words, is that how do we out those? How do we actually talk about them? How do we put them on the table and go, let's not pretend everything's going to be win-win and easy and it's going to work within you know, the old systems. We're going to have to do some hard work of, of actually transforming these systems, not just put old wine in new bottles. I think that's absolutely right. I think I think you're right as well about the tensions that businesses feel. I mean, speaking for myself, definitely so. But I know the number of smaller ethical businesses that are closing at the moment because we're measured on those old fashioned measurements, you know, just in terms of profitability. That's what people are measured on. But anyway, moving on. Um, so you mentioned the wonderful Kate Rayworth and her coming up with her model which I think, was it 2011 she launched that book? Yeah, what, 2011 she came up with the model, 2012, it was about 10, 11 years ago, and last, it's six years ago she launched the book. She launched it, okay, the book. And, uh, it, and it, so there's been a bit of an evolution of, of, of this. They went from, you know, a circle that was the planetary boundaries 
on which he drew an inner circle and said, hey, it's not just the planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists have told us we must not transgress. There's an inner circle here too. We also need an economy that meets the essentials of life for everybody on this planet. And, and this provides two separate boundaries that, that we, we must not transgress. Um, so that began with that, turned into a book that that ended up, I think, helping people rethink economics, to, to rethink the ideas that we've inherited that maybe we need to, to evolve or ditch or, or transform, um, to then a whole bunch of people popping up around the world saying, I want to turn this into action. I, I've, I'm in a neighborhood and my, my community wants to use this as a framework to see how we as a community can live within the donut. Uh, cities started using this and people across decision-making bodies and cities and civil society and, and local communities started using it as a framework. We started seeing you know, people in national governments do this. We started seeing people in all sorts of non-governmental organizations and arts organizations and teachers began to inject this into their curriculum and their work. So it's, it, all this action emerged. And, and on top of that, Kate, alongside her co-founder, Carlotta, who together start to deal you know, three, four years ago now, um, essentially as an action lab. And that's a very deal is, you know, donut economics action lab. And those are very deliberate words. It's about fostering action and, and it's a lab because we are learning. We're experimenting with what the economy of the future will need to look like. And it's, it's being co-created. It's happening in a, in a place of collaboration, a, a space of co-creation across the world. And we're, and institutionally an organization that tries to support that, foster that, um, at times convene, at times create tools, but also make sure that the, the concepts and ideas of donut economics are upheld in terms of their full integrity and ambition. Hmm. I think I think it's interesting, isn't it? You take something that's a, not a theory exactly, a, a, but a, a strategy, a plan, and it said how to make that real in the world and how to how to come up against the traditional well not traditional the the, the last century um, economic system and say no this one is what we need to be moving across to now so how do you how do you change mindsets I suppose in the bigger space of the business world and the economic world to in, into thinking they have to think about these other key um, areas yeah I, I think across the board there are very different approaches that work for different kinds of individuals, organizations, structures, um, actors in a system. But essentially, there are some commonalities. And one of them is to create a sense of hopefulness. This is this is coming. You know, we, we're creating this system. People are co-creating the system, these ideas and models, because we have to. <laughs> you know, the, the alternative is pretty dire. If we get stuck in an, in a system that has to have endless economic growth that it has to have endless growth in consumption that is stuck in a linear model of taking from earth making things using things and then losing things and repeating that process over and over again a model that has created spiraling inequality globally and within countries if we get stuck in that and don't <laughs> challenge it and create something hopeful dynamic innovative fresh that can be fit for purpose, then things are gonna look pretty negative. And the exciting bit is that this is the place of creation. This is the, this is the space where people are innovating and, and creating the ideas of the future. And I think the buzz around that, the buzz around saying this is, it's a playful space. It's a space of experimentation. It's a space of inspiration. It's, it's not a space of harsh judgment, but one where we're trying to be as ambitious as possible. I think that sort of transcends our work and, and the contribution Donut Economics tries to make to the new economic space more generally and to the broader transformation of our economic and social systems that are needed. So are you seeing um, interest from, say, economics within universities or the Royal Economic Society, people like that, or are they still very much entrenched in the old type systems? There is interest. It's growing interest. Um, it's pretty hard to ignore. I think we've got, you know, thousands of people now around the world that are in one way or another taking donut economics and, and putting it into action in, in whatever institutional setup they might be in or whatever community or place-based approach they're taking. Um, so people are engaging. I mean, major global institutions. I mean, just 
next week we're going to the European Parliament. Myself and Kate, you know, we'll both be presenting at a conference there. There'll be loads of other organizations from the broader new economics movement there as well. Um, we're, you know, Kate's often on the BBC or she's on, you know, various mainstream debates around the future of economics. So it's becoming hard to ignore. Um, but, you know, there's a bit of a journey, I think. There's a, you know, it goes it goes from, you know, looking down on you and, and, and sort of ignoring you to one where they start to take you a bit seriously. And eventually there'll be people that will resist this, you know, because it's it will challenge the status quo. These things will mean that, you know, the setup of the status quo that works for a, a small minority might not work in the same way for the longer term. So um, there are those that also um, do resist, but, but it's not a huge amount at the moment, to be honest, Joe. And, and I think there are a few, you know, building on my answer to, to your last question about sort of, you know, how, how the approach of change making happens. One of the things I, I didn't mention is that we, we don't use the isms of the 20th century. We try to, you know, in, in creating that 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 future space that that can be inclusive of, of a much broader set of people and we can leave our baggage behind, the 20th century baggage of of debates of outdated ideas and isms and 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 our misconceptions around each other's definitions of this ism or that ism. I think that helps. That helps a lot because um you start from a pragmatic space of saying, look, this is the donut, this is the reality of our planet's boundaries and the needs of society. Let's have economic systems that that have to work within those realities and those those two realities, the donut as a you know first principle, I think is hard to argue with. You know, mm. who's gonna say our planet doesn't have boundary, who's gonna say we don't need to meet the needs of all people on this planet? Um, if those two are facts that roughly everybody can universally accept and engage with, then it becomes an opening more broadly. Yeah, and I think you're right. So rather than attacking the current systems, which is always the temptation, certainly for me, it's um it's it's this is what the future could look like. And and as you say, who would deny? I mean, obviously there are people who would deny it, but maybe not too openly anymore. But who would deny that we want to have a society where everyone has a good good quality of life? And who would deny that we want to have a planet that is sustainable in the sense of it? we will keep it going and it will continue to support us. You'd think they would be irrefutable truths, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the the tricky debates come in, how do we meet that goal? How do we get to that goal? And what are the what are the trade-offs that need to be navigated? And, you know, there are lots of people who will say, look, technology is going to fix everything. Don't don't worry, we don't need to transform every, anything. We'll, we'll, someone will invent something that will suck all the carbon out of the air or we'll you know put all the soil back into a much better situation or reverse the desalinate the, the um the ocean acidification that's happened or you know the biodiversity loss don't worry it's not such a you know there'll be people that argue that there will be we don't need to concern ourselves with um with, with these problems but i think as you say they're in the minority and i think overall people do have a sense of urgency building around some of this meeting that urgency and that anxiety with a with, with a a space where people can engage in an emotionally honest way but also in a slightly more exciting and playful way um is helpful mm, definitely i i'm always i'm reminded i went to a talk a few years ago with um christiana figueres from the paris agreement and somebody asked her the question about what do you do about climate deniers and she said you ignore them because to be honest they're never going to be persuaded you know so it, it, there will be some people who you say, like you say, have entrenched views, but maybe ignore them is too strong. But, but don't don't spend ages and ages and ages trying to convince them. They will come. They will be brought along with the systems as they change. You know, they'll they'll they won't be so entrenched once they see things developing. But some people don't find it so easy to grasp new ideas. Well, one thing we one um, principle that has been really critical for our work is we go where the energy is, and that means. We don't knock on closed doors. We don't try to convince governments or business leaders or, you know, activists who aren't convinced by this. And, and fortunately for us, there is there are a lot of open doors. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of interest. And supporting and fostering that positive energy is is really worthwhile. Um, and, and maybe, you know, those of us that that are sometimes privileged enough to to speak in front of an audience, um, 
will we'll, we'll maybe attest to this that you're you're saying something and then you can see there's one or two dissenting voices in the room and you end up focusing too much on them yeah. and they end up like capturing your agenda they end up capturing your attention that they end up being the focus you, you end up directing sometimes too much of your energy and and um efforts to to win them around you know at the expense of the other 98 people in the room who, who are with you and you could have fostered a great sort of ambition a great way of of, of moving forward with them but got slightly distracted i mean that, that's a that's something that we sometimes talk about that you know how do we how do we make sure we, we sort of accept that there'll be some people who disagree and that's fine or they won't agree with the process or the or aspects of our, of the approach that that's okay we don't we don't need to convince everybody but there's a lot of energy brewing out there and it's kind of enough to mobilize that and yeah i mean if anyone hasn't looked into the science of tipping points it's it can be i found it very um encouraging that the tipping point isn't at 50 percent you know it's it's more like 20 or 25 percent we we need to get to a critical mass at that point we you know where the alternative economy we're creating is beginning to look not just desirable but viable and beginning to look like it's it's emerging and is where the excitement is and um that means that yeah we have to be strategic where we put our energy i guess I think what you're right, what you say about the sometimes we can get too caught up trying to explain or justify to people. There's a phrase I really like and I had to to myself quite a lot. I think I think Winston Churchill said it, but as if you stop, stop every time you pass a barking dog, you're never going to get to your destination. Yes. I quite well, like that. That's a good thing to repeat, I think. <laughs> I and also, that. if that barking dog drains your energy and your enthusiasm and, you know, it takes too much of your attention your your headspace like that that's a that's a huge shame as well so exactly. i think um there's a real opportunity to yeah i think challenge i i think all change makers and hopefully people listening to this it will resonate with them that the way we manage our, ourselves and our own emotions through these really difficult complex you know change making times is is also a big part of that journey like we we need to be i think well resourced and quite strategic tactical deliberate in in what we focus our energy on definitely definitely there's only so much energy you've got and so much time you've got you've got to do the best you can with it really that's the key thing so um a lot of the people listening will have obviously heard of donut economics but also heard of other types of systems sustainable development goals the b corp movement perhaps circular economy the regenerative economy how do you see donut economics fitting in with all of those existing frameworks well, some of them are very explicitly a part of the donut. So if you think of planetary boundaries, for instance, and you know that that the the that work that Earth system scientists have done, that's the outer, you know, concentric circle, the outer boundary. But the inner boundary is actually from the sustainable development goals. Mm-hmm. That that social foundation we talk about, well, those are the social goals from the so sustainable development goals. Um so that's the, the SDGs are intricately part of the donut in, at the highest level regenerative being regenerative and regenerative thinking uh, particularly as we've drawn this from the world of you know biomimicry and amazing thinkers activists like janine benius who've worked on how do we learn from nature how do we make sure we have uh, systems that work with and within the living world and circular economy certainly is one of those that's central i mean if you that's that one of the key parts of the book that kate wrote and one of the central parts of what we what we work on um if we look at you know alternative business movements like social enterprise like cooperatives like steward ownership which is emerging or post-growth entrepreneurship which is emerging um, or future future guardianship model. If you know people can Google that if they haven't heard of it, a company called River Simple is doing it in Wales at the moment. All of these sort of alternative ways of structuring businesses is, is is central to the way we have been explicit of saying how do we redesign business so that it can unlock those kinds of actions needed to help humanity into the donut. So a lot of those, uh, some of them are sister movements. Some of them are explicitly part of the donut economics model for for the world others are we've taken inspiration from so yeah i mean i I think overall um where we've always said to ourselves we want to join the movement we don't want to be the movement um 
But we also need to be very clear that it's a transformation that we're focusing on and and those sort of emerging ideas, models that are demonstrating what's possible is absolutely pivotal to all of it. Mm. I, th- I think that's one of the reasons I really love, one of the many reasons I really love donating economics is because it takes, it, it isn't saying that one doesn't work. It's saying let's take those into our framework and we can all work within the same thing because we've got the same the same goals the outer layer and the inner layer so i mean you've got a strong fair trade background as well so it's that that very much looking at the social side in assuming that people have to have decent wages decent health and safety etc in in the way that they work so i think it it's a really nice model for that encompasses absolutely everything that you know fits beautifully Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, building on the, the fair trade point you made, Jeremy, I, I learned so much when I was um, working essentially for those 400 social enterprises around the world that were adopting and em- embracing all the principles of fair trade. And, you know, I, I remember learning really through them what the limits of growth are. You know, I remember, I'm not sure if you've ever come across Matthew John, who leads an organization called Last Forest in India. Um, and they do amazing work working with forestry communities to create, you know, honey and they weave, weave fabrics and do all sorts of wonderful products. But I remember, you know, back when I first started, when I met Matthew and I talked about how do we how do we bring impact investing here? How do we scale these businesses? How do we grow them? And 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 I had a lesson on look, there are limits to like there's a right scale and size for every business. It's not endless growth and actually maybe the model needs to be a replication of each other a replication of the ideas and models that work effectively I think saying, let's make things as big as possible so yeah there's i think a lot of wisdom in that in those you know fair trade social enterprises around the world who have demonstrated actually going beyond just as some of those social core foundations actually there are big ideas on the future of business yeah i think you're so right i mean all the, the organizations i've worked with it's very inspiring the way that having that on the ground knowledge of what nature can deliver without as part of a regenerative model or circular model without pushing it to the boundary of exhaustion I suppose and actually saying this is enough this is enough that we can we can create with this um, thing that we have so land or whatever Um, so for example I'm very much into the cotton growing side so with cotton for example how much cotton can we actually grow from the land using just rainwater using mulching systems using regenerative farming processes without pushing it forward by having to having to get greater and greater yields through genetic modification through pesticides and all of those kind of things you know so, so what, when can we draw the line and say that's enough that's what the limit of what the land can produce without being harmed that's right and, and i mean and those sorts of decisions mean maybe not at the, for the smallest of micro businesses but when you get to a certain level and you start having invest investors in the business when you start having you know thinking about ways to to attract finance to to get the business to a particular scale it starts to become a really important structural question of is the business designed in a way to for instance not always try to grow you know on on everything or not always try to increase profits not always try to cut costs not always try to extract greater amounts of dividends you know that that central question of the dna of business and 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 the structures of business and the way that it has or hasn't been able to evolve is is really the, the main focus for donut economics in a way that it you know tries to transform the world of business so that that's why i mentioned particularly those sorts of ideas that that are about, you know, restructuring ownership, like steward ownership or employee ownership or, or, or you know, um, worker ownership models. Things that are explicitly about re- restructuring the relationship between investors and what they're able to to claim and what what kind of role that they have in the governance of a of a business, like many of the fair trade social enterprises that you and I probably have known over the years but also other emerging models that we're beginning to see across the world as well, which put stakeholders as, as board members when the business gets to a certain stage, for instance. 
um, including nature. We're beginning to see companies that are putting earth on their board through, for instance, lawyers for nature who act as a, a, a representative of the interests of, of earth on boards. So we're beginning to see these new ideas emerge. And I was, I'm, and we're very careful to sort of distinguish like those models that are pushing that conversation to deeply restructure. And then those models that are, that, that, that don't go so far, um, but are helpful to, to start the conversation off, like the B Corp idea, for instance, which doesn't get to a point where it really, it requires you to structurally change in any way that's going to unlock what we're talking about. But it's a good beginning point of the kind of processes that might need to be in place for you to at least understand and consider your impacts within the current structures and paradigms of, of um, the 20th century models of business that we've inherited. So I think there is a there's this additional distinction as well to to recognize where the you know the those emerging ideas and models are, are coming in to to redefine and restructure business and to also recognize how important it's going to be to support that version alongside efforts to make existing businesses less bad. Mm. Yeah, and no, I, I love I love your <clears throat> your talks thinking about the stakeholders side of things in particular when, when you're speaking a, a few um episodes ago i um spoke with anil um kumar and bavaram from radis cotton i don't know if you've come across them but they've they've they're basically a cooperative that work with a number a large large number thousands of tribal cotton farmers um in south india but what i really like about their model is they get the business the businesses that are there traditionally customers rather than they just pay them money and a load of t-shirts arrive in the post kind of thing they're brought on board right at the beginning so they they pay the farmers for almost like leasing the land that the cotton will grow on and then they what they what happens is the cotton that comes from that land then becomes the product that they get at the end of the day but the the whole process can take many months and they're part of that process the whole way through so they get to see and be be really intrinsically linked to the production as opposed to just I want a load of t-shirts deliver them to this address that's phenomenal and I think um, any of us that have worked in international supply chains on fair trade issues know just the importance of those payment terms just the importance of of cash flow and how exploitative the mainstream supply chains have become in terms of you know 60 90 day payment terms you know the expectations of you know delivering I don't know, free uh, samples that cost a huge amount of effort to, to, to you know, restructure. Or the, the demands on timings of you know, hand-printed products that, you know, during rainy seasons that aren't ever going to dry in a, you know, in a natural, you know, so there are all sorts of things that mean that the conversation there has to get structural as well. We need to talk about when do payments happen and and, and how is the risk shared more more equally and how is the, how are the benefits shared more equally? And, and these are sorts of, I think, emerging ideas that certainly the fair trade movement, I think, has done exceptionally well on putting on the table. Um, but we, we need to retain them, you know, even though it might feel a bit sort of 80s and 90s now to think about those issues of worker rights and, and payment terms, et cetera, and pricing, um, because they've been on the on the table for so long and, and a lot of the mainstream economy hasn't moved on it. I think we, we also need to persist because for a company that works in the consumer goods industry, 70, 80% of their impact is in their supply chain. And for that supply chain, I can tell you that what will matter more than anything else are those payment terms. So that is the, that's the priority. That's where the rubber hits the road. We can't sweep that away as an inconvenience or uncomfortable to talk about money situation. That, that is the, that's how you separate the wheat from the chaff and any company, you know, worth their, worth their word will be, will be doing meaningful things. And, and that's actually changing within those big companies. And I, I, I can immediately think of two companies I've worked with over the last few years. I won't name names where maybe after some conversations, the willingness was there to do things like pay for samples. And when I, we had workforce across the supply chain looking into various things, they wanted to find out more about, you know, can you find out about this fabric? Can you find out about that process? saying to them, you can't expect those people to do that work if you don't pay them, whereas it's perceived in their mentality, but also in their financial systems, that that's cost of sale. There is nothing in the um, in their payment structure to cover 
cost of sale because we're supposed to we and our suppliers are supposed to sort of absorb those costs in the final price but then of course they're going to force down the price to be a standard market price anyway you know so i think we have to change financial systems so that when you're talking to um to trying to get some production done there are actually mechanisms for paying for cost of sale for information gathering for samples all of those kind of things the whole way through yeah and, and i mean I, I another lesson i learned in in that world of of fair trade was when i i got to know the the business model of the german importer el puente um which is a really interesting importer and distributor of food products of of garments of of, of homewares across northern europe in particular particularly germany and when COVID-19 hit, you know, I, I was the CEO of the World Fair Trade Organization. And of course, there was this huge concern that, look, there's there are all these livelihoods that depend on these supply chains continuing. They're often in countries where there aren't social safety nets. You know, there, there aren't savings to fall back on. There, there aren't sort of any government support that's going to let people get through. We've got to keep these things going. We've got to, but ships were, you know, sh- shipping um, options were closing down and, and ports were, were were closed down, and and workshops had to be had to be shut because of measures, and and shops in the global north were were shut down. at meat and sales and orders weren't coming through, and for so many of the, the businesses in the developing world or in the global south, they were facing a, you know a, a real crisis of survival, um, and especially as they were facing a lot of mainstream buyers who were renegotiating contracts who were cutting their prices who were renegotiating their commitments and in response to that and the, the reason i'm talk, telling this story is what i saw in el, el puente and so many other you know social enterprise focused fair trade buyers were was a huge commitment that they started to provide additional fi- financial flexibility they d- decided to say look here's the money up front we know that you can't produce at the moment but hey when you can make this, send it over, but at least it's going to give you some cash flow to continue operations, to pay your staff. And that was a real light bulb moment for me about what, what was it about that business that did that? And, and one of the things was, if you look at the board of El Puente, they have suppliers represented. The voice of suppliers are there. They, they, there's, a, there's a representative that's elected to represent the voice of suppliers. So immediately business knew the urgency at the highest levels of acting to make sure that there was some level of solidarity with their suppliers around the world with whom they've traded for 30 plus years. Um, and the structure of the business led to a behavior that allowed, you know, a, a markedly different impact on people and planet happening throughout their supply chain. Mm. I, I think you're right. It's an interesting point that COVID did show up the limitations of the traditional 20th century, if you want to call it, economic model, didn't it? Because there was quite certainly in the um, ethical fashion space there was quite a few mainstream brands who just didn't pay so even for goods that they'd already ordered and had been produced for them because their their, their payment model meant that they didn't have to pay till 60 days after delivery they didn't then pay at all without any consideration for whether the people who had produced those were paid and whether those businesses carried on with being able to survive I suppose and so we saw we did see the, the two sides of that coin where there were um, fair trade organisations and the guys that you mentioned who wanted to be in it together in that partnership model. And we're all we're all dealing with this together. And other ones who basically said, not our problem, mate, we don't have to pay because our legal boundaries don't say that we have to. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it sort of really opened up, opened my eyes to the importance of transforming what we call it a deal the deep design of business so that it is not just liberated to consider those impacts but actually it's designed to prioritize those impacts when push comes to shove it will pay up front it will stick with its commitments it will foster long-term partnerships it won't try to constantly cut costs across the supply chain so to me that's become a a real litmus test for determining Mm -hmm. Is this company just about sort of saying, yeah, sure, we consider our impacts and then we do what we're going to do anyway? Or is it there to genuinely have a purpose, have a social ecological purpose at the heart of its brand and business? 
is it part of a bigger thing, a bigger ecosystem, I suppose, or is it standalone just trying to extract as opposed to be part of something? I suppose yeah, because I mean, I guess in, in our space, I mean, this has become very fashionable to talk about purpose, to talk about, you know, the sustainability commitments, talk about how authentic the brand's commitments are and and we haven't really given people the skill set or the tools to um evaluate you know which which bits are meaningful which bits aren't so mm. i think it's a conversation we've got to keep pushing and and there's one thing you know any of the listeners here can take away if a, if you're buying a product that has a, a supply chain particularly into the global south that's where the action is that's where you need to look and you need to ask questions about payment about pricing about the commitment about the longevity of the partnership you know about the breadth of the partnership and it's not about policing the supply chain it's about creating long-term partnerships that's that's the litmus test if if you're not seeing anything on that and probably lots of the other stuff is is also lacking authenticity mm, i think you're right i think for some for some organizations it's as you said before it's a nice start it's a heading in the right direction thing but it's a, maybe a bit of box ticking and they don't have those systems in place as yet to be part of the change so for the example of that again on the cotton one because it's my more my area of expertise but we want to have a lot more organic and regenerative cotton in the world being produced by farmers but there has to be a three-year process from them changing from say genetically modified cotton to um, certified organic so do you say, well, I'm not going to buy that cotton until it's certified organic, or do you buy the interim cotton, which is being farmed organically, but is part of that three-year cycle to clean out all of the bad stuff, I guess, um, before that? So I think when when I talk to a business who says, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to to take that, we want to work with that, then I know that they're serious about it, rather than, oh, no, we have to have a box tick to say that it's organic cotton. Absolutely. And and also, I mean, the interesting test for that would be, does the company have the depth of relationship with its consumers to be able to say, look, we're committing to a three-year process to transition entire communities into organic farming. This is how it's done. This is how it works. If you, if everyone piles in only on the ones that have already achieved that status, then we're not going to change the world. We change the world by actually focusing ones that aren't and get them to an organic status. And I think... Yeah, that level of depth and authenticity, I have a conviction that that it, it does cut through, that people, it passes the, the smell test to go, yeah, actually, you're transitioning farmers. This is more, this is more impressive than finding farmers that already have achieved that status. Yeah because you're because you are part of something against that back to that stakeholder thing you're not just buying something to lob over the wall sort of thing which is is much nicer um we've referred quite a lot to um some of the businesses that are already doing great things around fair trade and whatever with the sdgs i learned an interesting figure the other day i was at a talk um name drop here at the house of commons <laughs> which was about um is actually part of the uh anti-blood sports campaign but one of the speakers Jill Poet from the organization for responsible businesses put some figures out there one that was 99% of businesses in the UK are actually small businesses I think it's 99.8 are in the zero to 49 people and 99.2 I think I've got the figures right are actually 0 to 10 employees so really quite small micro businesses and that's 99% of businesses within the UK and obviously most of the ethical type businesses fair trade businesses in the UK will be falling into that category so how can we encourage smaller businesses which are going to be the ones that lead the way to be honest to think in terms of the donut when they're doing their strategizing and planning yeah I mean and I think we're right to focus on small businesses and the role of small businesses um, and, and numerically, if we count all the businesses in the UK and globally, that you're right, the majority of the businesses are going to be small businesses um, in terms of their volumetric impact on environment and society. Of course, it's not 99 percent. I mean, it's a you, you have to add up a lot of small businesses together to get to one big business yeah, you do. with its enormous um, social ecological impacts. But I think a few things. I mean, firstly, 
but by their nature, small businesses have a more distributive impact. You know, by and large, they're not extracting wealth to put into tax havens. They're not, you know, engineering themselves into a tax avoidance scheme in the same way that the large companies do with, you know, huge amounts of expertise and sophistication. They're not trying, they don't have a bargaining power to, you know, impose exploitative conditions on most of their trading partners. They, you know, so there is, there's a very, the money just circulates much more broadly by and large with small businesses. And I think on the social side as a sort of meta or, or macro framing, I think we, we've got to remember that. We've got to remember the importance of small businesses. Um, I think on the ecological side, I also think that there's a, we need to remember that businesses rooted in their community are more likely to see the impacts that they have socially as well. You know, they, if I worked in a major multinational many years ago when I first started my career, you know, nearly 20 years ago. And I remember thinking the decision makers sitting up in Cincinnati, how, how could they ever know their social or ecological impacts of the decisions that they're making? But if you're a small business, you're engaging with your employees, you know the names of your employees, you know who your customers and consumers are, you know, you, you're a part of your community. You might be a good person, you might not be a good person. It's, it's not a judgment on, you know, your individual ethics. But by the nature of you being a small business, there are social pressures and there is a, a place-based, you know, rooting of that business that I think is important to recognize as well that has important social ecological impact so this all just to say yes small businesses actually um have got some inherent social and ecological advantages in their impacts but the other thing is that often the where sustainability has gone and where requirements including some you know regulatory requirements that have come through whether it's at the eu level or uk or elsewhere sometimes place small businesses at a disadvantage you know the way sustainability regulations work i mean you need almost need a team of people working on transparency and disclosure and impact measurement and you know it becomes um an exercise that is really tailored for large corporations and i think it's important for a broader sort of community to recognize that look we need a different approach here we need one that is focused on what makes sense for a small business sometimes informal business to to take um, social ecological well seriously. And I think last, my last point would be if you are a small business person that is interested in issues of sustainability or ecological social goals and impacts, then, you know, use your own intuition as well. Like this stuff looks really complicated. I, I teach this at universities. I, I, I run workshops with startups and business. You know, we can make it into a real dog's breakfast of complication and sophistication but honestly a lot of it's very intuitive like where are your impacts like where does this where does the product that you're selling come from what what impact has it had on the land on on the forest you don't need to know all the answers just think about it a bit ask a few questions in your supply chain think about how that product is going to be consumed and then what's the end of life of that product is it going to be disposed can it be returned what's what's emerging in terms of options for you to play a role in reducing all those negative impacts and then look for ways to be genuinely a part of a, a force for good on, in terms of positive impacts so i think a lot of this um you know we shouldn't over over complicate or overburden um business leaders and, and actually demystify some of this for, for people as well it's not you know it's, it's not as complicated as you might think it is it is it's a bit more complicated for very large companies with like very complicated supply chains and but even there it's you know i think it's it's not rocket science sustainability isn't rocket science it's it's about just caring about the social ecological impact caring about the lives of your workers caring about the consumers and how your decisions impact their ability to get life's essentials through what they're buying from you and i think through that business people know what that what they need to do and then there's a very different trajectory for those that need finance in order to to grow they feel like they need to grow their business to, to get to a, a more viable point uh, more broadly well if that's the case then a whole different set of questions start to open up and become more pertinent around well, actually if venture capital comes in here what will it demand what control will i need to give to it how can i bring other stakeholders into the governance how can i make sure the ownership of this business remains focused on social ecological goals and becomes rooted in its community 
there's a whole host of work to be done around that. We've got a tool that allows people to to go through those questions, by the way, at donuteconomics.org if anyone's interested. Mm, no, that is really interesting, actually, because I suppose my view as a small business owner is that maybe I'm biased. <laughs> small business owners tend to be a bit more connected with all of those questions that you've raised, you know, their employees, their supply chains, et cetera. And I think there probably is a tendency for that. And I also believe that um, what a small business can deliver, although it is by its nature small in terms of impact, it kind of educates customers in what could be possible, which they then take back out when they're shopping maybe from larger businesses. So the expectation in terms of authenticity and information and all of that, they're going back out and saying, well, how come if this business over here can tell me, show me pictures of the people who made my clothing, how come you guys can't sort of thing? So I think there, there is that element. However, I think I do take your point completely that in terms of global impact, it's still going to be small compared with a, a lot a lot of small businesses required to be, I don't know, say a PWC or a SAP or someone like that. Um, but yeah, it's how how do you how do you get those same kinds of connectivity into the larger businesses to start having the same kinds of impacts. Um, it is a tricky one, I think. It is tricky and and it's there's no destination at which you get to rest. <laughs> you know, there's no point at which you go, yep, figured it out. We're now, you know, it's it's a constant process of just engaging, bringing in expertise when needed. If you if you get to you know complex supply chain questions, for instance, that that emerge, um, and, and for some things, as you know, you know far better than I do, Joe. It's really difficult to get the right information about this product that mm. you're sourcing. You know, it's really hard, and it requires quite a you know a, a bit of support to to at least get people through um those stages of 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 understanding what what's even possible to do if you're sourcing certain certain products certain inputs into your business but overall i i think if people are just engaged in a deep way have got a sense of curiosity and a sense of you know the worst thing we can do to small business people is to make them feel overwhelmed mm. and like and and like they can't do much because this is too complicated too heavy too too much prone to jargon you know and i think the reality is that it doesn't have to be that way it can be really accessible i mean look at the donut look at the the ecological impacts they all seem pretty you know intuitive if you look at all the social benefits we we want to create for society it's fairly intuitive we all need energy and food and, and water and livelihoods well, you know, what, what are you doing on those? Like, what, how, what are the decisions that you face? Where are some of the trade-offs? What do you aspire to be? Create some goals that that look at where your greatest impacts are. Don't pick something really obscure that is a tiny part of your business, but you stick to the mainstream bit where your greatest impact is and create some goals. Learn from the those that are pioneering things and see how you can be a part of the transition of that sector. Mm. Yeah, you can you can be part of something bigger. As a small business, you can join other organisations as part of something bigger. And I like your your mentioning of the tool for people who are considering venture capital or finance in some way to help with navigate those hurdles because there are hurdles there. It, you, you suddenly start having to think about the economics in a different way when you're trying to raise finance because you're being pressured in different directions so I think that that's really helpful that there's a tool there so thank you for that um I think one of my my last questions is moving really from the small business to the large business so we have business exists in regulatory frameworks which are currently primarily targeted on turnover and profitability and not so much although it's starting to get better on social and environmental um impacts how do you see the situation changing as we move forward so that large businesses have to be a bit more donutty? Yeah, I think it's going to be an iterative process. I, I don't think there's a single like clear trajectory of if you know governments regulate in this way, then it fixes everything. Because I think a multitude of things are going to happen. One is we're going to see new innovations that don't even exist yet in terms of the way we've we design business. And we're going to see people 
in the business world demonstrating what's possible. Hey, you can have a business that's co-owned with your workers or has got your supply chain and on your as a part of your governance model or has got earth represented somehow in your purpose and your your board. Like you, you're going we're gonna start seeing more and more innovations that haven't even occurred to, to you and I yet in terms of how business is designed because we're at the beginning of a journey of I think a bit of an explosion in in alternative enterprise designs. Um, of course, we're going to have to get governments that regulate these things that are that they're very that can be effective in regulating. I mean, the carbon footprint of companies can be regulated very effectively. Um, aspects of waste and aspects of you know human rights and upholding human rights can be can be regulated effectively. You know how forests are used and and, and water and land and air is can be regulated. So all those are going to be really important. But I think in order to reinforce those regulations and make them effective and make sure companies aren't looking for loopholes or finding ways to dodge them in some way, then we also need businesses to be transforming their deep design. So they're leaning in the same direction as a kind of regulation that comes. And this is why we focus so much on deep design, so much on you know asking questions about what is the future ownership model of this business if it's going to belong to an economy that's in the donut? What is What's the board going to look like? How, what are the financial parameters going to look like? What, what are the dividend expectations and what impact that has on the kind of behavior that business exhibits in its supply chain and, and with its workers? What are the financial parameters that are going to allow it to reinvest its profits back into the transitions it will need to undergo in order to have pursue its social and ecological goals? All of these things are going to be really pivotal. So a part of the journey will, will also be how do we make sure that we transform businesses and we have regulations that are leveling the playing field to the extent possible? Um, but the one by itself isn't going to be sufficient. We're going to need to do both. We're going to need to have a different regulatory environment that is geared to that bigger transition and transformation needed. And we, we also, we'll also need to have um, a, a meaningful transformation of, of business design in the kind of ways that we're talking about. No, it's, it's it's exciting. And I like, for me, it's really important about how that all, all the things you've just said fit into the donut. There's all these different things, but the donut is so all encompassing that all of those things can fit within it as we move forward. And it does. It, it's quite a nice positive feeling thinking that we can move forward in, in that direction. And uh, hopefully, fingers crossed for all those people watching on video, um, we'll get there. Um so last of all, really, Erich, I want to ask you to tell people how they can find out more, how they can get in touch, how they can join the movement, whatever you want to call it. Yes. Well, if you go to donuteconomics.org, spelt with D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T, economics.org, there's a whole community of change makers around the world that, that are getting involved. If you're involved in business, um, we've got some tools that businesses can use um to to uh, to engage with donut economics to look at the donut think about essentially the the biggest most ambitious ideas that they might want to pursue and to think about the kind of transitions and transformations of their business design that will need to accompany those ideas to unlock them so at donuteconomics.org there you know if you go to the thematic page or if you go to themes and pick pick business um, you can see it there if you go to if you want to just type in, for instance, donateconomics.org forward slash tools forward slash 206. That is the tool that is for a, a, what we call a taster tool for people to use. So we've got all these methodologies for running a workshop internally in a company. If you're a consultant, you, you can use these tools with your clients. We just ask people to register it to make sure that their values align. And there's some guidance on our Web page now. Um, organizations in action page that's what we call uh, those that are helping transform the world through through use of donut economics tools so yeah we invite you to 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 engage we invite you to to play with some of these tools and ask some some challenging but also hopefully exciting questions around how we can unlock those transformative ideas in order to help humanity into the donut Oh, that's really interesting. And I've been on one of the workshops led by you, actually. So I can vouch for how important they are, how valuable they are. So um, I really urge people to go and have a look at that website and see what is there that will be of use to you. And 
join the donut movement, I suppose, become part of the donuts. <laughs> anyway, um, is there anything else you'd like to add before I um, end the podcast? No, only to to welcome people and and join join wherever you can join. And don't don't feel disheartened. Don't feel overwhelmed. There are many change makers around the world that are are making very important progress. All of this is possible. Um, it requires a level of ambition and courage to, to sometimes push forward with new ideas. But we're we're working within a system that we're transforming together, um, and that's not always going to be linear or clear. But I think. Uh, it's beyond possible. It's it's probable. We're going to get there together. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you, Erin, for joining us on the Where Does It Come From podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Where Does It Come From podcast. Please rate us on your platform and follow us so that we can share this podcast with more people. And if you'd like to find out more about the work of Where Does It Come From, please visit our website on Where Does It Come From dot co dot uk for kind clothes that tell tales.